You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with the heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Well, I figured out yesterday why all you Alabama people like football. It, it, it dawned on me as I was watching um, that football is kind of the sport that collects all the other sports. I mean, yesterday there was track and field, there was boxing, um, there was, um, you know, a lot of passing. Uh, by track and field, I mean some of Alabama's receivers. Uh, unbelievable. There was even ballet yesterday. Um, and along with that then, so you get all of that plus drama and theater. Uh, and you put all that together in one afternoon and one of the things that the sportscasters said that I really liked was that when this game is over Alabamans don't have a next game to go to this is it so this finishes it and if I were a pastor I would far prefer game day to be on Saturday than Sunday and Alabama kind of cooperates with that so there's those are all those reasons I was thinking yesterday as I was watching the game uh, and far probably much more appropriate to say in Sunday school class than in the nave. Revelation chapter 11 is our text for the day. Um, and the office got it right. I got it wrong. Revelation 12 is John's Christmas story. And I'm off a week. So chapter 11 is our chapter uh, for today. And uh, next week will be St. John's Christmas story in Revelation chapter 11. Uh, I hope the aim of this class is being somewhat fulfilled in that Revelation is being perceived as more approachable, more first century commentary on discipleship rather than the calculus of and curiosity of end times uh, uh, imagination. Uh, uh, you've got uh, the first 19 verses of Revelation chapter 11 in italicized print on your study guide, and there's some extra study guides there, so I hope everybody is able to grab one. Uh, let's pray. Lord God, in this time, we ask that you would speak to us from your word. You'd help us to grasp this message for the 21st century, even as believers struggle to grasp it in the first century. We ask this in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. So let me read uh, from uh, the sheet here, Revelation chapter 11, 1 through 19. Uh, listen carefully. This is God's word. I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and I was told, go and measure the temple of God in the altar with its worshipers, but exclude the outer court, do not measure it, because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months, and I will appoint my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days, clothed in sackcloth. That clothed in sackcloth is going to be an important indicator, a marker in a moment. They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands, and they stand before the Lord of earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. 
This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. They have power to shut up the sky so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. And they have power to turn waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Now when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower them and kill them. The bodies will lie, their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, many from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. But after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet and terror struck those who saw them. And then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud which their enemies looked, while their enemies looked on. At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past and the third woe is coming soon. Now let's keep our attention on the text itself in the italicized print. And I'd like to sort of walk through this passage rather than my numbered outline, which will contain hopefully most of what I'm about to say. But uh, I think I'd like you to, you're reading Revelation now, and how do you read it? And that's somewhat the key for our understanding of, of the book. To set the scene, you have a mighty angel, and you have an old apostle. And the almighty angel, who's got one foot on earth and one foot in the sea, and uh, has the little book which is containing the revelation of the culmination of salvation and judgment. And remember John, this old apostle. I like that, that old apostle, because every time I read that, I feel there's still a place for me in the ministry of the word. So this old apostle takes it and eats it and metabolizes in his body. He becomes the message, a message of salvation and a message of judgment, because remember, as he metabolizes the message, it becomes bitter in his stomach. And what that would signify is this is a hard message. It is a message that both includes, and there's nothing more inclusive than the gospel of Jesus Christ, but it's also exclusive because there is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. And that inclusiveness and that exclusiveness is part of this gospel message. John is given a reed to measure. He's already been given a message to uh, a commission to preach to all the tribes and nations and languages and peoples. But he's also now given this, uh, supposed to draw a boundary. He's, he, he, in a way, is uh, circumscribing the people of God. Go and measure the temple of God and the altar. And the temple of God and the altar stand for the people of God and that which centers them in Jesus Christ. 
He's using language that comes out of Ezekiel 40 through 48. He's really preaching an Ezekiel sermon here by his allusions. Exclude the outer court. Don't measure it. There is a dividing wall. Um, and it, we have to be careful as Christians not to create a wall of hostility that the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2 talks about being torn down because of Jesus Christ. So there must be no artificial walls of hostility. So there's no wall between races. There's no wall between social classes. There's no wall, gender wall. There, there are no walls that we create. But there is a distinction here between those who are in the gospel and those who are outside the gospel. And this is uh, building up to a, kind of a climax, to a crisis. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months and, or 1260 days. How should we understand this terminology, this numerical terminology? Three and a half years... 42 months, 1260 days. Now, this 42 months idea, the three and a half years points back to when Elijah uh, prophesied a drought for Israel for three and a half years. It points back to perhaps the 42 encampments of the Israelites in the wilderness. 42 times of setting up the camp and breaking it down. It's been uh, it's alluded to in the Old Testament these 42 times. So John is taking this as a symbol, a symbol of the duration of the church age where the people of God deliver the gospel to a world, to every tribe, nation, language, and people group. And the metaphors kind of pile up here. They are the two olive, uh, olive trees, these two witnesses, they will trample on the, uh, let me back up here. I will appoint my two witnesses. Now, in dispensational thought and in the curiosity of end times calculation, some have said that, well, that means two people are going to come back and they're going to be the witnesses. Uh, my take on this is that the two witnesses represent the witness of the church. And remember in Deuteronomy, to have confirmation for any particular fact, you needed two witnesses. And that's where I think this image of two witnesses comes from. They're not just two people, but it's two witnesses that summarizes metaphorically the church witness, the body of Christ. Because they also are two olive trees. So you know we're speaking metaphorically here because we don't have two witnesses that are also literally two olive trees. But olive trees were used for energy and for light, the olive oil. And here the, the energy and the light is symbolized in these two olive trees and two lampstands. So you've got two witnesses, two olive trees, two lampstands, and they stand before the Lord of the earth and they bear witness. There's light, there's energy, there's truth. There's confirm, you know, three sets of two confirms the truth of the gospel. So I realize you're, I guess you're having to just accept 
I mean, you certainly can go back and and uh, and and disagree with my perspective, and I, I realize I'm rushing through it in a way to explain the metaphor. But I think we have strong, substantial support for concluding that the two witnesses represent the church, the two olive trees represent the church, the two lampstands represent the church. Remember the opening vision of Christ in chapter one: Christ is walking among the lampstands. So you have the blazing sun, uh, uh, radiant with uh, all this light, walking amongst the lampstands, two candlesticks. Uh, if anyone tries to harm them, them, I would say harming the church, the body of Christ, the people of God. Fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. Now that sounds kind of violent that the response of the two witnesses, the response of the church, is this uh, fire-breathing dragon-like uh, response. But what is the fire in our bones, as Jeremiah spoke? What is the uh, consuming fire uh, that the book of Hebrews refers to? It's the Word of God. That's the fire. Uh, and so... The defense of the believer, the defense of the believing community, is the word of God, the gospel spoken. And this is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. They have power to shut up the sky. That thinks, makes us think of Elijah. That the witness of the church today has the power of Elijah, that Elijah illustrated in terms of the power of God. And... The time they were, and they have power to turn the waters into blood. Who does that make us think of? But Moses. So you've got Elijah and Moses, and that's why some people have interpreted this passage as arguing that both Elijah and Moses will return in order to bear witness at the end, in literal Moses and Elijah form, uh, just like they appeared in the Transfiguration along with Jesus. I'm inclined to think that it's the church that is like Elijah and like Moses, these two witnesses, two olive trees, two lampstands. Now, when they have finished their testimony, the second paragraph there, the beast that comes from the abyss, and we've already had an introduction to the, to the Apollyon and to the beast of the beast. There's three beasts, sea, land, and Satan. Um, We'll have much more to say about that as we uh, progress through the book. Uh, they will attack and overpower and kill them. So there's a suggestion here at the end uh, of this three and a half years of this church age sequence. What's three and a half years is half of seven. Seven is the symbolic number of perfection and completeness and wholeness. So three and a half years uh, also would in indicate that the persecution the church suffers is limited. It's, there's a boundary around that, even as John sets the boundary for the temple. Their bodies will lie in, public, in the public square of the great city. So these two witnesses die. The church is persecuted and suffers greatly in response to the witness of the church in the face of the opposition from the world, which is figuratively... Now, figure out what city. This great city, figuratively called Sodom, 
and Egypt. Sodom wasn't in Egypt. And also their Lord was crucified, which would speak of Jerusalem. So in that sentence, you have the great city identified with Sodom, with Egypt, and with Jerusalem. What would you make of that? Well, what I make of that is that the great city stands for the culture that is antithetical to the living God and to the gospel. The world has become Sodom. The world has become Egypt. The world has become Jerusalem, the place where Christ was crucified. Now that three and a half years, the 1260 days, the 42 months, has now come down to these three and a half days. And many from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. It was thought, you know, in a literalistic understanding of this, that, that CNN is now picturing these two witnesses dead in the street, and the whole world is rejoicing that finally this uh, disturbing message uh, that, that of the gospel of salvation and judgment is no longer there. Uh, I don't think that's the idea that John is communicating here. What he's communicating is that the witness of the church has almost died out and people are rejoicing. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. How had they tormented those? I mean, that's an interesting expression for a message that we have, um, we rejoice in as good news. But does the good news become bad news for people who don't want to live under the Lordship of Jesus Christ, who don't want the message of salvation? That's what this implies. This implies that the message the church gives, the moral order that the church speaks of in terms of the Ten Commandments and the law of God, um, the reality of what it is to deny ourselves and live for Christ, um, that all of that is perceived by the world as tormenting, tormenting news. <laughs> it's not good news. They're tormented by it, and they're thankful to be done with it. For the two witnesses, the two olive trees, the two lampstands, uh, they're dead in the great city. Uh, we will compare, going forward, the great city and the garden city of God. Uh, Revelation gives us a, a wonderful picture of uh, those two cities. But after three and a half days, the last paragraph there, but after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them. They stood on their feet. The terror struck those who saw them. And then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. And now in that uh, final paragraph. See, I don't see that as rapture. I see Christ calling his, the church to himself. And we are describing the end. But remember, John, in this spiraling revelation, has the end coming many times. And here, this is the third end. At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake, and a tenth of the city collapsed. And you see, these numbers don't seem to add up to the previous descriptions of the end that seemed almost more catastrophic and more uh, universal than this. 
But I think, again, these numbers are symbolic. A tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed. Well, that doesn't really compute with earlier descriptions of the end that were more catastrophic. But 7,000, again, is symbolic of the totality, the wholeness. And the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Well, how are they giving glory to God? Uh, Paul says in Philippians, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Is this a universal turning to God? Genuinely so? Or is this a grudging acknowledgement that indeed Jesus is king? We've resisted it. We continue to resist it. And scholars debate that conclusion. Which way? Universalistically or uh, distinctively? Uh, the second woe is past. The third woe is coming again. Well, that's a reading of Revelation chapter 11. Do you have any thoughts, comments, questions you want? How are we doing on time? If you ask them too hard, you get to do the 11 o'clock service. It's a joke. <laughs> any thoughts? really interesting to read as I reflect here on Ezekiel 40 through 48 and how close John is in working off of uh, that. Uh, I explain a number seven on your study thing that the numbers, I find that that's maybe one of the things that confuses us uh, the most. Um, Number seven, the destiny of the witnessing church is held secure through a defined period of opposition and persecution that lasts for a figurative 42 months or 1260 days. This three and a half years is a broken seven. Recalls Daniel's prophecy, the holy people will be delivered into the hands for a time, times, and half a time. And the number 42 may stand for Elijah's ministry of judgment when rain was withheld from Israel for three and a half years a detail we would not know apart from Jesus telling us. It may symbolize Israel's experience in the wilderness for 42 encampments. The trampling of the holy city corresponds to the time when the woman who is a figure for the people of God is on the run and is protected in the wilderness for 1260 days. That's coming, the 1260 days. Uh, what you have in John in the scope of the book of Revelation, this is where it gets confusing around now in terms of that chronology is we've had uh, we've had a description of these uh, seven and the, the, the seven letters to the churches, the seven trumpets, um, the seven uh, seven seals, the seven thunders were stopped and not done. And then we're going to have the seven bowls. In between these seven trumpets and the seven bowls, John sort of reviews salvation history. He kind of he, he does an interlude here, and you, you kind of have to grasp what he's doing. And he's really that's why I'm going to uh, next week we'll talk about St. John's Christmas story. He really talks. It's his Christmas. I've preached on this at Christmas Eve. If you can imagine that. You can all be thankful you don't go to my church. Um, 
But the, uh, it's a great text for Christmas. Uh, you know, John doesn't talk about the nativity in the Gospel of John. He reserves it for here. So you've got Matthew, Mark that talk about it at length. Uh, not Matthew, Mark, Matthew, Luke that talk about it at length. But this is John's nativity scene. It's interesting to read it in the light of the church. I'll try to explain that next week. Um, but he's he's putting a lot in there, uh, I think, in order to um, draw on the entirety of Scripture. And just uh, number eight will hopefully clarify my two witness emphasis. The two witnesses are dressed in sackcloth, a symbol of repentance and grief. One thing that never works for the church on this side of eternity is a triumphalistic attitude. Whenever the church feels like it's in charge or when the church projects itself as being the thing in culture, I think it fails. Um, We don't have a prosperity gospel. I don't think we lead with the with the tagline "Our best life now." Uh, we are not the center of culture, and a symbol of that in the uh, the old apostle and the two witnesses are dressed in sackcloth, and that uniform of sackcloth is a witness to a church that's humble, that's calling people to repentance, that is saying, as it were, with some. 122, save me, save me. Joseph uh, Mangina, who teaches at Wycliffe College in Toronto, writes, and it's the italicized print there in number eight, the proclamation of the gospel requires the telling of truth about human sin, including, although by no means limited to, that sin committed by the church itself. The church represents Jesus Christ to the world in the painful awareness that it will be often that it will often misrepresent him. It is therefore clothed in sackcloth, modeling for the world that turning back to God is the appropriate response to the gospel. So we come before God with humility. We're sinners saved by grace. We never forget that. Does this passage make sense to you? Well, I'll turn to 14. Number 14. I know if I got you off, one or two of you in a small group, we'd have more discussion, wouldn't we? I'm sure we would, and I'd benefit from that. You know, I I teach small classes. Um, This last semester, I've had two classes of 13 in each. Uh, We're not superstitious at Beeson. Um, And uh, delightful conversations uh, with students. Uh, I give all my lectures uh, ahead of time to them in writing. So they read what I would teach. 
and then we come together and we talk. Uh, and they write reflection papers on what they have read. So they've read my material, they've written a paper on it, and then they come and talk. And um, I feel like 20-somethings, maybe this true is true for every something, I think 20-somethings don't understand it until they've articulated it, until they've talked it out, until they've expressed it. Um, I wonder if that would work at the advent. Gave all my lectures ahead of time in writing. You read them, you wrote a reflection paper, and then we came together and you discussed them. Think that would work? Number 14. The inhabitants of the great city despise God's grace, overpower the church, kill the witnesses. Earth dwellers is a phrase in the book of Revelation in the NIV that stands for those in antithesis to the gospel. The earth dwellers are outraged that the two witnesses who stand for the witness of the entire church preach a message not only of salvation, but of judgment. This is why I'm not a universalist. Uh, I believe there's so much in the New Testament that speaks of responsibility and accountability to the good news that Jesus Christ has shared. And I do think that we can stubbornly, persistently, oppose it, um, I think the, uh, the unpardonable sin is a adamant refusal to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ to the end. Those who deny Christ and embrace idolatry will be subject to judgment. For three and a half days, it looks like defeat is in the final outcome. The court of the Gentiles, the great city, the place called Sodom, the very place where the Lord was crucified, goes wild with excitement. The bodies are subject to public humiliation and desecration, and they're left to rot in the street. All that would imply that the, the experience of the Nigerian church, for example, in, in northern Nigeria, where um, radical Islamists are sort of ruling the day, and subjecting the church to random violence and killings, that that eventually will be the order of the conclusion to world history, that the church will be subject to that kind of persecution. What's happening in the small space of Nigeria, as it were, will become global in its impact. That's what John is implying here. Um, and that certainly will separate the, the valid, true, authentic Christian from the name-only Christian, the Christian who is part of the tradition, part of the culture, part of the way we live life. Uh, so I'd have to say that Revelation is a sobering picture. It's, there's a bitterness to the message that John uh, takes in. Well, uh, in conclusion for today, uh, you don't have the seventh trumpet on, but I'd like to read the seventh trumpet from Scripture. Uh, it's verse 15 through uh, 19 in Revelation chapter 11. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah and he will reign forever and ever. 
I love how Handel took so many passages from Revelation, set them to music. Uh, one of my favorites, and it applies to the Psalm 122, uh, when for unto us a son is given, unto us a child is born. Remember that uh, piece. For unto us, unto us is uh, said repeated 14 times. If you've noticed, unto us, unto us, unto us. It, it like led us uh, from the psalm. Uh, verse 16, And the 24 elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you were taken, you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. And the nations were angry, and your wrath has come. The time has come for judgment, for judging the dead, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your people who revere your name, both great and small, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Doesn't this sound like a conclusion? It sounds like the end. Uh, and in a way, John is constantly working the end of the end. Finally, then God's temple in heaven was opened, and within his temple was seen the ark of his covenant. This is all symbolic language for the fulfillment of the gospel. And there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and, severe, and a severe hailstorm. Do not expect to be bored in the presence of God. Ever. I think that's one of the subtexts of the book of Revelation. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for continuing to speak to us by your spirit. I pray that uh, the message of Revelation would sink into our souls, uh, that our lives would from top to bottom be different because it has been shaped by the gospel. We give you thanks. In Christ's name, amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.